7.34. Let's talk about the White House, first of all. It issued new guidelines against the spread of COVID-19 this week, requesting Americans stay home from work or school for the next 15 days and limit gatherings to 10 people. To further discuss how the pandemic's affecting the US and its social distancing strategy, we're joined first by Dr. Maurizio Santillana, Director of the Machine Intelligence Lab at Boston Children's Hospital and Assistant Professor of Epidemiology at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. So how do you evaluate the impact that COVID-19 is having in the U.S. at this point? Thousands of infections, a death toll that's now into triple figures. Well, um, I think that uh, the the impact that COVID-19 is having in the U.S. is still to be um, uh, known because the number of tests that have been uh, performed on people uh, has been suboptimal. So uh, we still need to find out uh, the, you know, how bad it is. I know that um, you guys in South Korea have done a much better job at um, identifying cases. So we hope that in the near term, our country will be tested more widely, and thus we will be able to assess the, um, the size of the epidemic outbreak. Well, the shortage in testing kits have been reported as a major problem in the U.S. And, and actually, as you say, one of the main benefits that we've had here in Korea, the, the opposite. Um, but the Trump administration has said labs across the country will be able to process coronavirus screenings of up to 4,000 people a day starting this week. H- has there been a dramatic change already? Well, uh, you know, activity, um, you know, social distancing has uh, started taking place. Here in Boston, for example, um, last Friday, uh, there were many cities around the area that decided to close schools. And over the weekend, the, um, the mayor of Boston decided to close schools as well. And so we are in for a big change in our, in our daily lives um, as we speak. Is it more, though, concern about what's happened in Italy and, and other European countries right now? Because the, the scale of the United States, the, the geographical landmass, it, it's not actually a huge number of cases there so far by comparison. That's right. But we fear that given the number of tests that have been deployed in our society, we just don't know the actual number. Right. We estimate, in fact, that uh, you know the first case uh, that was that arriving to the U.S. Uh, happened um, almost at the same time as it happened in, in South Korea. And so judging from what has happened um, there and what, what has happened in Italy, Germany, Spain, Great Britain, we suspect that we're not seeing the size of the iceberg. And as a consequence, um, we want to be prepared to not um, go uh, under similar scenarios as people in Europe are going. Well, 100 deaths is higher than what we've seen here in South Korea, but it's also still significantly lower than Italy, for example. So that, even though we don't know the overall number of cases in in the United States because of the the testing limitations, we can, can't we, deduce something from the death toll, Um, as long as we haven't got other deaths that are not being reported, of course. Well, that would be true if people who are dying from pneumonia would be tested regularly, and this is not the case yet. So we cannot say Mm. that the number of deaths 
due to pneumonia uh, were caused by either either COVID-19 or not. Okay, so even w- with the deaths, we're not getting necessarily a fully accurate picture as, uh, I mean, by comparison, Italy's death toll has gone past 2,500, which which is just remarkable. I mean, I know you're not reporting on the Italian situation, but while we have an expert like you on the line, uh, why do you think it is that Italy has seen such a high death toll so far compared with other places? Well, demographically speaking, uh, the Italian population is older uh, that could explain a bit of the situation there. Uh, in general, uh, European societies uh, tend to be uh, to, to have more uh, elderly in their um, countries. Uh, that could be a factor. As I said before, in the U.S., we will continue learning because we will hopefully deploy a wider effort to test. And yeah. in doing so, uh, things will get clearer. Yeah, I mean, again, there's lots of areas that we could study here that that perhaps we're not in a position to discuss on the air now. But South Korea obviously has one of the fast aging societies. The, the, the infections, though, for example, in the Daegu area were um, actually quite young uh, in terms of the people who are picking up COVID-19, which perhaps also goes some way to explaining the lower death toll here. But there may yet be other factors that come to light. I'd like to ask you, um, Dr. Santillano, about social distancing as well. Uh, South Korea has gone down this kind of route of leaving it up to people. Uh, Workplaces have also had a fair bit of freedom in in making those choices and restaurants and retailers. Um, Italy, China for example, and some other parts of the world now are imposing much stronger lockdowns. What's the U.S. approach? So as of now, we're trying to learn from what other countries are doing. My understanding is that South Korea has taken a more tailored approach or more uh, surgical approach in the sense that given that you guys are uh, testing a lot more people, you can focus on isolating the right hotspots in our in your society and that appears from the data that we get uh, from the outside to be a successful strategy in the u.s given that uh, our testing capacity has been low um, and given that we're observing similar countries uh, in in our european counterparts uh, experiencing already saturation in their healthcare systems we want to prevent that from happening because if it starts happening that uh, enough people are getting sick at the same time, and we cannot provide healthcare um, assistance to them. Uh, then mortality rates will increase, which is what you what you're seeing in, in in Europe. And so we want to prevent that. As of now, the social distancing in the U.S. has been uh, substantial. Yet uh, still, people can leave their houses. Uh, they are advised to not go to crowded uh, sp- crowded spaces but it is not as extreme as it is in European countries. Again, we'll see later how effective some of those differences happen to be. But you've been analysing day-to-day data to work out social network models in understanding the pandemic, I understand. Can you share some of the findings on, on the patterns you've seen emerging? Well, we know that uh, uh, you know the, the process of transmission happens in our physical social networks. So in an ideal world, 
with uh, you know enough information to know who is affected by COVID-19, we would just limit those people to be exposed to other uh, human beings. And in principle, that could take care of the problem. Now there's enough uncertainty and enough asymptomatic transmission in our population that, uh, you know, e- even if people are not showing symptoms, they may still be carrying the disease. So that complicates the way in which uh, we deal with uh, tr- efforts to mitigate the, uh, the effects of this outbreak. Well, also just briefly to touch on a question going forward, do you have hope that warming weather will help the summer, for example? So as of, as, as we speak, we keep uh, analysing uh, the different areas that are being affected by COVID-19 and trying to understand if uh, places where warmer weather and um, more humid conditions are taking place we're trying to identify if those environmental conditions lead to slower transmission. Um, uh, this is still work uh, in progress. Mm. Uh, so far, we have seen mild effects uh, of temperature on transmission uh, that could signal that, in principle, uh, warmer temperatures could uh, have an effect. However, we have also seen sustained transmission in warm places. So. Uh, the the issue uh, uh, right now is that most of our uh, population is susceptible to be uh, infected by COVID-19. And so that high level of susceptibility may be uh, an important factor right now to control the outbreak. And so we cannot rely uh, only on changes in weather uh, to take care of the problem. Dr. Maurizio Santillana speaking to us from... Well, a couple of different positions at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. It's good to have you with us on the line. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. Thank you. And uh, north of the border, Canada's also announced drastic measures to contain COVID-19. Perhaps more or less drastic, depending on who you're comparing with, but it's closed its borders to all with the exception of US citizens, and it comes as the country now has infections reported in all 10 provinces. We can continue our conversation with Professor Gerald Evans, Chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. And good morning to you from Seoul. Uh, Good morning. Obviously, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has had very up-close-and-personal encounters with COVID-19, with his own wife being infected. Do you think that actually would have made a difference in, in terms of his response? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, personal experience oftentimes uh, will have an impact, even on uh, people who are expected to look at things from a, a more sort of objective view as a leader. But um, I, I would suspect it may have had something to do with, with some of the things. But he's, uh, I think the government in Canada here really has been taking advice from public health experts uh, and others. And so I, I think it was a, a, suggest, you know, a, a recommendation and an, an enacting it that was really based on, on science. So in terms of border closures, what's your view? There is some controversy about this, and sometimes diplomacy and politics plays too high a role next to basic health concerns and protecting lives. But South Korea, for example, has um, still remained fairly open on this. Uh, But Canada taking this tougher measure, do you support it? Well, 
certainly we know that travel restrictions in general have a very minimal, if any, really uh, major effect on this. So if one equates border closings with travel restrictions, it's not uh, potentially that effective. I think what's driven this is really um, a reaction to the issue that uh, border closures and lockdowns in a number of countries uh, in Europe and elsewhere have led to some difficulty in um, in trying to control the return of Canadian citizens and others from abroad. And we know that airport screening is not effective at all. So I think it's part and parcel of uh, of, of a mixture of some of the politics of making sure that you look like you're taking some action uh, and at the same time uh, trying to create a, a circumstance where if you're the government, you're, you're able to sort of control uh, at least the uh, ingress, or in, in this case, the egress of patients uh, or persons coming into the country. Can I just press a little further on that, uh, about why you, you would say travel restrictions are, are not so effective? Um, I, I can understand why airport screenings might not be, especially before people develop symptoms. But this idea that uh, keeping people out, uh, surely that puts the odds in your favour of being less reduced to new infections? Um, Yes and no. I mean, the problem that we have is that for all the restrictions that are put into place, I mean, for one of the best examples is when uh, the Americans uh, prohibited travel from Europe to the U.S. Well, uh, if you can travel from Europe to Canada, you can easily catch a flight from Canada to the U.S. So that that travel restriction doesn't really work in preventing people from coming uh, from a, an area like Europe now, which is actually probably the as has been quoted the epicenter mm. or the current hotspot in the world. So I think that's why um, we know that travel restrictions, although somewhat effective are not as effective as I think people believe them to be. Right. I mean, because as I say, it's become a political issue here. South Korea, having a border with North Korea doesn't have quite the same issue as uh, as Canada has with the United States. But but nonetheless, it's uh, it, it, it's been a very contentious question. And perhaps we can put that back out to our listeners, uh, whether you think travel restrictions should be tougher here in Korea. Pound 1013 for 51 per message. But Canada has done quite well on this so far, apparently, in, in containing the outbreak. So what else has it done right? Well, I mean, I think uh, there has been a, a wholesale um, endorsement of the concepts of social distancing. Uh, we have enacted and used some of the powers that the public health officials have to put out directives and edicts that require um, uh, those things to be done. So there's a whole public health regulatory framework here, which gives the power to either the chief medical officers of health, uh, either in the provinces or in the country as a whole, as well as the Minister of Health, to invoke a number of things uh, and and we've really been, I think, and my colleagues and I have been at the forefront of pushing, if you're going to do this, you need to do it early. And we've been lucky here in Canada that we're only now beginning to see the curve up. And we've been learning from countries, and I'd say South Korea is an example, of bringing in measures early and quickly, because if you're going to have an impact with those types of policies, you need to enact them very early. And, we, and you know, there's research from a hundred years ago during the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic that the country, the cities that, that put social distancing in place early did much, much better than those that brought them in afterwards. Let's just go a little deeper into what social distancing means. For example, if I come to work, as I have done today, and then go to a restaurant for lunch or perhaps go to the gym at some point in the day, go home. Uh, Do you feel that it's possible to carry on as normal and do those things while still practicing social distancing? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I think it's important that um, you know that uh, people understand that social distancing is a term that's applied to a variety of actions that are taken by public health officials just to simply stop or slow down the spread of a of a contagious disease. And some of those are recommendations. Um, you know, the the issue of uh, you know, uh, um, washing your hands and avoiding people who are sick and practicing cough etiquette, and, and then all the way to measures where there's an enactment of things like school and university closures, banning large gatherings, closing commerce down to set hours, or even putting into place large and small-scale quarantines. And all of those things are really meant so that you don't have to do what's happened in in at least two European countries, which is a lockdown of the country. And a lockdown uh, that's occurred in Italy and uh, now in Spain are really, um, at that point, uh, I almost want to use the English analogy of closing the barn doors after the horses have bolted. Um, So so social distancing is important. The things that you do are perfectly fine in in your day-to-day activities. um, You know, you can carry those out, but you're making sure that in doing that, for instance, if you're at the gym, you're doing measures to help make sure the equipment's cleaned off and uh, the, hopefully the gym, if it's still open, is doing that for you as well. And then making sure that in your interactions, um, you know, you stand a certain uh, distance away from people and, and avoid people who are sick. So they're all very useful and some of them certainly can be disruptive, especially when there's closures. But a lot of them are just enacting things that we otherwise don't sort of think about and normally do in our day-to-day lives. Professor Gerald Evans speaking to us out of Queen's University in Ontario. Thank you also for taking the time. Thanks for having me.